Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 35, the Book of Romans, chapter 15, continued. I want to begin by giving you a thought-provoking tidbit of history about the Book of Romans that I think you need to carefully weigh. Now this information reveals something about the book itself. But perhaps even more it reveals something about the uneven history of the development of Christianity in general. Now we're about halfway through our study of Romans chapter 15. However, there is a lot of scholarly controversy about the final two chapters of the book of Romans. One of the controversies is whether or not chapters 15 and 16 were written by Paul and perhaps were just added by someone at a, at a later date. Another is a contention that Paul indeed wrote the first 14 chapters of the book of Romans as a general systematic theology of Christianity that was meant to be sent out to all believing congregations. But only later did Paul revise it by adding chapters 15 and 16 before sending it to the congregation in Rome. Now as one can easily imagine much of the reason for these controversies and where a Bible scholar chooses to take his stand and his conclusions about them centers around the particular doctrines that he or she might hold. The reality is that Romans chapters 15 and 16 put up to grave doubt some of the more common church doctrines such as Paul not just converting to Christianity but also leaving his Jewishness behind and essentially converting to becoming a Gentile. But what better way to solve that dispute than to simply declare chapters 15 and 16 as invalid or of questionable authorship or inspiration or value. It is true, it is true that ancient Greek manuscripts of the book of Romans are not identical. There are variations and differences, often depending on the region where they're found. Some of the earliest manuscripts of the book of Romans do end at chapter 14, what we would call chapter 14. Others include chapter 15, but not chapter 16. Some slightly rearrange a few of the verses. Still others contain all 16 chapters. But what is it about chapters 15 or 16, or both of them, that causes such heartburn for some Christian Bible commentators? 
generally speaking, it's because of the heavy concentration of Old Testament scripture references that are used. And Paul's declaration that it is these that he considers as the Holy Scriptures. Paul also strongly insists that it is the Father, the God of the Old Testament, that is to be glorified. And the Son, the God of the New Testament, is subject to the Father. This line of thinking casts serious doubt upon the beliefs of that part of Christianity that insists upon a very rigid Trinitarian doctrine that demands that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal persons. That is, there is no authority structure. There is no hierarchy among them. And there is no person out of the three who is higher or preeminent over the other two. And as I've mentioned before, while the modern church is careful not to say out loud that the God of the Old Testament is today therefore the older and the former God and therefore is largely irrelevant and the old and former God has given way to Jesus the new God of the New Testament in fact, some of the most widespread fundamental church doctrines just operate upon that assumption. Paul's statements, especially in chapter 15 of Romans, blows holes in that church tradition. The early church father, Origen, has recorded for us the reason that the very early Greek manuscripts of the book of Romans end at chapter 14. Marcion removed chapters 15 and 16. Now we've discussed who Marcion is before. He was a wealthy and powerful Gentile shipping magnate who claimed Christianity in the mid-2nd century. He used his wealth to gain substantial influence in the church. He was openly anti-Semitic. He despised Jews. And so was greatly agitated by the heavy focus of the Old Testament upon Israel and the Hebrews. It was Marcion who first advocated that Christians should set aside the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, and create a Christian Bible to replace it. His suggestion for what would be contained in this new Christian Bible was the Gospel accounts that we're familiar with, several of Paul's letters, some of which Marcion personally edited, and a couple more documents. Now, at first, the church bishops were appalled at such a suggestion and they branded him a heretic. However, as the years passed and Christianity quickly morphed into a Gentiles-only faith and much of the church separated itself more and more from its Hebraic faith heritage, 
Marcion's concept of a new Christian Bible was resurrected. And by around 200 to 220 AD, a number of church bishops from various regions, more or less, followed Marcion's formula and the New Testament was created. Now, not surprisingly, these church bishops incorporated some of the documents that Marcion had personally edited, and one of those was the Book of Romans, as edited by him. Marcion had edited out of Romans what we today call chapters 15 and 16 for the obvious reason that it exposed Paul's reverence for and his reliance upon the Old Testament as well as confirming his staunch Jewishness. It would be many years later before other church bishops from other regions of the world who had older copies of Paul's letter to the Romans at their disposal, they began lobbying to restore those final two chapters. And so over the next many years, various churches added some elements of those two chapters, others added them fully but in edited form, and others accepted them in total as is. Now it shouldn't shock us for these various forms of the book of Romans to exist. I mean, it is, after all, human beings with differing agendas who are making the decisions about the final form of this document and all of the others of the New Testament as well. I mean, I've mentioned before to you, surprises believers today to hear, that the book of Romans, uh, excuse me, the book of Hebrews, for instance, has been included, then removed, then re-included, then removed again from the New Testament over the centuries. As a matter of fact, the Western version, the one you have, of the New Testament, Hebrews was added back in only 200 years ago. It's relatively new. Some like Marcion and others of his anti-Jewish ilk did all they could to wring any favorable Jewish flavor out of the New Testament. They wanted it to be a Gentile-oriented work. But others had reasonable and pragmatic reasons for leaving certain sections of Romans out. For instance, chapter 16, as we'll see next week, was either an addendum or simply a non-theological ending to this letter that was mostly about certain people who were with Paul that knew many of the folks in the congregation of Rome and they simply wanted to say hello. So as Paul's long letter that we know as the book of Romans went into circulation after the Romans received it and then they released it for, for general consumption and as paper was scarce and expensive then it makes sense that what we today call chapter 16 would be left out for all the other congregations to see because it was mostly personal. It had no relevance to other congregations, at least it didn't to their way of thinking. Now one more historical note that is especially pertinent to our study of Romans 15. 
Paul was probably in the province of Achaia when he wrote this letter. He felt he had mostly completed his mission of evangelizing the East as a pioneer, if you would, of the gospel of Christ. And he actually explains this in uh, verse 19 of Romans 15. And he says there that he had ventured all the way to Illyricum. Now, as a result, he says, he was ready now to move his mission field towards the west, towards Italy, and then from there onward to Spain. In fact, a case could be made that Paul was more or less preparing for his trip to Rome by sending the Roman congregation this letter in advance and informing them all about his plans. And I'm going to remind you that a few years later, four perhaps, four years later perhaps, he, in, he did indeed wind up in Rome, but not in the manner in which he'd hoped. He arrived as a prisoner he was going to plead his case before the Caesar. Well, the book of Acts indicates that when he was in Rome, he met with several prominent Jews in the Roman Jewish community, but there's nothing explicit that says that he actually had interaction with the congregation to which he had sent this letter. And as far as anyone knows, Rome is as far to the west as Paul ever journeyed. He never made it to Spain. So, with all that as a background, let's reread part of Romans chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 17. So, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, open your page to 1420. 1420. Romans 15, starting at verse 17. In union with the Messiah Yeshua then, I have reason to be proud of my service to God, for I will dare not speak of anything except what the Messiah has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by my words and deeds, through the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit of God. So, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the good news of the Messiah. I have always made it my ambition to proclaim the good news where the Messiah was not yet known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation but rather as the Tanakh puts it those who have not been told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. Now this is also why I have so often been prevented from visiting you. But now since there is no longer a place in these regions that needs me and since I have wanted for many years to come to you, I hope to see you as I pass through on my way to Spain and to have you help me travel there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem with aid for God's people there. For Macedonia and Achia thought it would be good to make some contributions to the poor among God's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. Fact is, they owe it to them. 
For if the Gentiles have shared with the Jews in spiritual matters, then the Gentiles clearly have a duty to help the Jews in material matters. So when I've finished this task and I've made certain that they have received this fruit, I will leave for Spain and visit you on my way there. And I know that when I come to you, it will be with the full measure of the Messiah's blessings. And now I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Yeshua the Messiah and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God on my behalf that I will be rescued from the unbelievers in Judah and that my service for Jerusalem will be acceptable to God's people there. Then, if it is God's will, I will come to you with joy and have a time of rest among you. Now, may the God of Shalom be with you all. Amen. In verse 20, Paul makes it clear that he wanted to pioneer new areas for the gospel and not attach himself to the work of others who came before him. This is further proof that Paul was not the only believing Jewish evangelist of the good news and more it shows that Paul was not the boss, so to speak, of any believers or organization of believers who undertook an evangelistic mission. What set Paul apart from all the others was that he was an apostle appointed directly by Christ and that Gentiles were to be his primary mission field. It was simply pragmatism that led to Paul usually winding up at synagogues everywhere he went because there he would find some number of Gentiles who had interest in the Jewish faith. I mean, it was much less of a leap for a Gentile to trust in Messiah Yeshua from already having some knowledge of the Bible and to some degree identifying with the Jewish faith than it would be for a pagan Gentile who had absolutely no familiarity with the scriptures. Paul had to begin by instructing them in the basic concept of sin and thus their need for a savior. These were uniquely Jewish concepts for which pagans had no basis for understanding. This is what makes the rapid spread of Christianity among Gentiles all the more astounding and downright miraculous. So then in verse 22, Paul explains that the reason he has never been to Rome is because he was prevented from it by all the missionary work he was already doing in pioneering new areas. Well, apparently, even before Paul began his evangelistic efforts, the congregation of Rome was already established. Just who established it, we don't know. But it's interesting that Paul sees himself as a sort of Johnny Appleseed of planting believing congregations. He has no illusions that his purpose is to start a congregation, stay and grow it, and behave as we think of a pastor. Paul's purpose was not to be a long-term shepherd or caretaker over a particular group of believers. In fact, I don't even think Paul had the demeanor of a pastor 
Paul was all business. Paul was a scholar, a teacher, and authoritarian. His goal was to spread the gospel of Christ as far as possible, to as many as possible, as quickly as possible. So Paul devised a strategy. He went around establishing believing congregations by wandering into a town where there was a, a Jewish community where they would usually welcome him. Next, he would convince some number of Jews and Gentiles that Yeshua was the Jewish Messiah. Then he would select a leader from among them. He would help the leader set up an organization, establish some place for the believers to meet, and all during this time he would instruct the leadership in proper doctrine. Once accomplished, he moved on. He kept track of these various groups he created through letters. And through these letters, which we see as, his, as these many epistles or books in the Bible, through these letters he reproved them, he commended them, and he taught them. Well, in verse 24, Paul announces that he intends to go to Spain. Now, does this mean that as far as Paul knows, the gospel has not yet been preached there? I don't know for sure. But I rather think so, considering what he's just said about pioneering. However, Paul is going to take a route to Spain that necessarily has him going through Italy. In Italy, he'll go to Rome, spend some time with the Roman congregation. Now, you know, if you just look at this map, whether by road or by sea, Rome isn't really a natural stop on the way to Spain he would have to make a pretty significant detour. And by explaining to the Roman congregation that his ultimate destination was Spain, they would immediately understand that his coming to Rome required some extra time and effort on his part. But we must also understand that in Paul's day, Spain was seen as one of the furthest places on earth that a person could travel to. At least it seemed that way from a Middle Easterner's perspective. It could take as much as a full year just to get there. In the first chapter of the book of Acts, we read this. Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, comes upon you. You will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judah and Samaria, indeed to the ends of the earth. So in a sense, by going to Spain, Paul would have been following Yeshua's instructions by evangelizing the West as representative of the ends of the earth. What was Paul's motive for stopping in Rome? After all, this was not a congregation that he'd established. He didn't seem personally to know the leadership. No doubt it had something to do with the city of Rome being the hub of the known world and therefore also the religious power center of the known world. From a purely pragmatic viewpoint, Rome was all important and since the city was so heavily populated, likely it had a pretty large congregation of believers, perhaps even more than one congregation of believers. 
But Paul also made it clear that he hoped for help from these believers in Rome to finish getting him to Spain. Now likely this meant monetary help, perhaps even some of the members coming along with him to Spain to, to, to help him out. No matter how he might get to Spain, it was going to be a long, tiring, risky journey. So staying in Rome to rest for several weeks to recuperate would have been desirable even though it required a substantial detour on his part. Well, he next explains that before he undertakes his trip to Spain, first he has to go to Jerusalem. Itself a long and challenging trip. He says he's going to be taking aid for God's people there. In other passages, in others of his books, he says that it is also to go to Jerusalem to fulfill the Torah commandment to make a pilgrimage to the temple for the occasion of the biblical festival of Shavuot, Pentecost. And when he mentions bringing aid, he is speaking of the collection of money he had been taking up donations from the various congregations he was visiting on all these missionary trips all around the Mediterranean. Now to show you just how interconnected Paul's letters are and why we must always look to his other letters to other congregations to give us the fullest context for what he means by many of his challenging comments, we're going to read about this same collection of charity and of Paul's trip to bring it to Jerusalem in a few different places in the New Testament. Just a small sampling. For instance, in Acts 24, 17 and 18. After an absence of several years, I came to Yerushalayim to bring a charitable gift to my nation and to offer sacrifices. It was in connection with the latter that they found me in the temple. I had been ceremonially purified. I was not with the crowd. I was not causing a disturbance. Notice that Paul intended on doing what at the temple? Making sacrifices. Doesn't sound much like a man who's turned his back on the Torah. Or a man who's left his Jewishness behind, does it? Seems that Paul certainly doesn't think that Yeshua abolished the sacrificial system, even though most Christian commentators claim Paul teaches against it. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul also speaks of this same trip to Jerusalem from a little bit different perspective. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1-8, he says this, Now, in regard to the collection being made for God's people, you are to do the same as I directed the congregations in Galatia to do. Every week on Motzei Shabbat, each of you should set some money aside according to his resources and save it up so that when I come, I won't have to do fundraising. And when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the people you have approved, and I will send them to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems appropriate that I go too, they will go along with me. 
I will visit you after I have gone through Macedonia, for I am intending to pass. I am intending to pass through Macedonia, and I may stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may help me continue my travels wherever I may go. For I don't want to see you now, when I am only passing through, because I am hoping to spend some time with you if the Lord allows it. But I will remain in Ephesus until Shavuot. Well, moving on to Romans fifteen twenty-seven. Paul tells the Roman believers that while it was generous and kind of the various believing congregations in the far-flung diaspora to donate these funds for the four Jewish believers in Jerusalem, in fact, what they did was closer to paying a debt than giving charity. Apparently, a great many Gentiles had donated. So Paul notes that since the Gentiles shared in the Jew's spiritual heritage, it behooved the Gentiles to pay back by helping the Jews in material matters. Now while the principle of sharing what we have with a brother in Christ is self-evident in this issue of taking aid to the believers in Jerusalem, it also follows along with Paul's highlighting of the biblical principle of love your neighbor that he's been preaching since Romans chapter 12. But in this same passage, I also want to highlight that Paul makes the point that Gentiles do not have our own separate spiritual heritage. By grace, Gentiles are allowed to share in what God gave to the Jews. It is the Jews' God-given spiritual heritage, the Gentiles can also enjoy through our trust in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is another of those passages that drives a number of Christian scholars to want to find sufficient fault with Romans chapter 15 to disregard much if not all of the entire chapter as having been not written by Paul. This is because it clearly refutes the rather standard Christian doctrine of Gentiles possessing a different and superior spiritual heritage than the Jews. In verse 28, Paul says that once he has completed this task of collecting donations and bringing the aid to the brothers in Jerusalem, he will then begin to focus on his intention of going to Spain and then stopping in on Rome on the, on the way. But then Paul says, says something rather cryptic. He says that he knows when he comes to the brothers in Rome that it will be with the full measure of the Messiah's blessings. Nice words. What does it mean? What does that mean? He's coming with the full measure of the Messiah's blessings. Well, let me tell you in advance that this is another of those statements in Romans 15 that many Bible commentators wish wasn't there because it has a direct connection to the Hebrew heritage of salvation. See, the Messiah's blessings that Paul speaks of are contained 
and the Father's promise to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant. In that in his seed all the nations of the world would be blessed. In other words, Paul is saying that his coming to Rome, the pagan capital of the world, and his coming to be with Christ believers in Rome, consisting of both Jews and Gentiles, is nothing less than the prophetic fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. 1800 years before Yeshua was born. Paul fleshes out what he means by the full measure of Messiah's blessings in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians 3, 13 through 16 we read, The Messiah redeemed us from the curse pronounced in the Torah by becoming cursed on our behalf. For the Tanakh says, everyone who hangs from a stake comes under a curse. Yeshua the Messiah did this so that in union with him, the Gentiles might receive the blessing announced to Abraham. So that through trusting and being faithful, we might receive what was promised, namely, the Spirit. Brothers, let me make an analogy from everyday life. When someone swears an oath, no one else can set it aside or add to it. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It doesn't say and to seeds, as if to many. On the contrary, it speaks of one and to your seed. And this one is the Messiah. Paul then asked the believers in Rome to join together in prayer for Paul about his upcoming trip to Jerusalem. He's expecting opposition the moment he enters into Judea. Now clearly Paul sees danger in his going to the Roman province of Judea because among the majority of Jews who do not believe in Yeshua are many, mainly the zealots, who would harm Paul. Now this is a good time to remind you that while it is the common mantra among Christians that the danger that Paul was always in was because he believed in Jesus Christ, that really is not the case. Some new messianic figure or another was always coming along that various groups of Jews believed in. I mean it was hardly a new or even a rare phenomenon. Certainly that Paul thought Yeshua was divine, well that offended the most pious, especially the Pharisees. But the reason that Paul was always facing the prospect of physical violence had to do with his befriending of Gentiles. Zealots were radical, militant Jews. They were itching for an armed rebellion against Rome. They wanted to fight for their freedom from Rome. And just as it always is for human beings, we tend to stereotype entire groups of people simply because somebody who looks like them or bears the same affiliations might be seen as our enemy. The Zealots hated all Gentiles because to their minds, they represented Rome. 
the oppressors of the Jews. Now clearly all Gentiles didn't oppress Jews. Besides that, the oppression was a political oppression. It was not a religious oppression. It is well documented that generally speaking, the Roman government bent over backwards to steer clear of Jewish religious matters and they accommodated Jewish beliefs wherever possible. The Romans were known for being tolerant of all gods and all religious systems provided they weren't advocating rebellion. Therefore, in the eyes of the Jewish zealots, Paul was seen as a political traitor to his people. See, it isn't that the treason was that he might have renounced his Jewishness and taken on a Gentile identity, even though thousands upon thousands of Jews, especially out in the diaspora, had actually done that. Rather, it is that he kept on staunchly identifying himself as a Jew at the same time that he, he cavorted with the enemy, with Gentiles. That, of course, was a purely political viewpoint. But from the religious perspective, Paul was also offering unclean Gentiles the opportunity to partake of sacred Jewish religious ideals while they remained as Gentiles. He would not have been in near as much danger, if any, had he agreed with the circumcision faction that in order to worship the Jewish Messiah, a Gentile had to convert and become a Jew by means of circumcision. Then Paul's association with Gentiles would have been looked at more as a Jew evangelizing for Judaism and Jewishness. That is, Paul would have been seen as one who was working to convert Gentiles to Jews. So when Paul says in verse 31 that he wants the believers in Rome to pray that the unbelievers in Jerusalem will find his service acceptable to them, he is speaking of temple service. He is referring to the fact that one of the reasons he desires to go to Jerusalem is to sacrifice at the temple. Paul is hoping that the unbelievers and the zealots especially will see that he is a good, loyal, Torah-observant Jew. Sacrificing is something that James, the brother of Yeshua, had advised Paul to do some years earlier when he had come to Jerusalem for different reasons. He felt that doing so would go a long way to proving that Paul remained loyal to the law of Moses, which was at the heart of being a Jew. So he, so Paul says here in verse 32, after he goes to Jerusalem, and when he faces all that he fears he might, then he'll be ready to go to Rome, stay for a while to rest. So Paul ends now this long letter to the believers in Rome rather typically with a blessing. The, this blessing is, is both a wish and it's a prayer. 
and calling God the God of peace, or better, like it has in our complete Jewish Bibles, in Hebrew, Shalom, the God of Shalom, Paul is acknowledging that all well-being, all blessing comes from God. Next week, we're going to take up the final chapter of Romans, and we will conclude our study of this perhaps the most influential of all of Paul's writings.